All good. I'd say, look, I'd say yeah. Sarah, okay. take off whenever you're ready. Perfect. Okay. So everyone, I'm going to talk about the book Culture Code, The Secret of um, Highly Successful Groups by Daniel Coyle. So the book starts off with a really interesting question. Why do certain groups add up to be greater than their parts while others add up to be less? So it's a really powerful question. And according to Daniel Coyle, group culture is what makes the difference. In fact, he actually cites a Harvard study of more than 200 companies, which found that a strong culture increases net income by 765% over 10 years. So with group culture, we can really sense when it exists and when it's there, its presence is really palpable, uh, whether that's in a business, in sport and in communities and families. And we can also really sense when it's not there. And certainly we can sense when it's toxic. So its significance and its importance is paramount. And yet, according to Daniel Coyle, we might all want these strong cultures. We might all know that culture is important. And yet we just don't always know how it works and what makes up that strong culture. And um, what he found in writing and researching for this book was that group cultures are actually created by applying a specific set of skills. And the three skills that he recommends are really simple. So skill number one is building safety. Skill number two is sharing vulnerability. And skill number three is establishing purpose. So I'm going to walk through the three skills um, that are within the book and provide an overview of what the book suggests that we all do to apply these skills And ultimately, what it's going to do is show us that culture is something that is not just something that is or something that isn't, but it's something that we all do when we apply these skills. So skill number one is building this safety. So it starts off with a really interesting experiment by Will Phelps, who studies organizational behavior in the University of South Wales in Australia. And Phelps brought in an actor that they called Nick. And the role of Nick in this context was to portray three negative archetypes. And his role was to act out the role of being a jerk. So someone who was really aggressive to play the role of the slacker, someone who was really lazy and not contributing, and then play the role of that downer, someone who was really negative and a bit of a mood killer. And what was so interesting was in almost every in almost every group, um, Nick, by playing that role, those three negative uh, personas, it actually dropped the performance, the overall group performance by 30 to 40 percent. So it's really significant. And it really demonstrates the impact of one negative person within a group. Um, but what the book goes into detail around was, of course, the study, there was one outlier group and the outlier group had a person that they called Jonathan. And what they found was the group that had this person, Jonathan, he was like an antidote to Nick's bad behavior. So every time Nick would behave like a jerk, for example, Jonathan would respond with a lot of warmth. He deflect the negativity and make the potentially unstable situation that every member in the group was experiencing suddenly feel a lot more solid and a lot more safe. So according to the book, uh, this study was pretty surprising and gave some invaluable insights into groups in two key ways. So the first way was that we tend to think that group performance depends on measurable abilities like skill and ability and intelligence and experience. 
not on really subtle patterns of small behaviors. And yet in this case, it was the small behaviors of this person, Jonathan, that was making the difference. And then the second surprise was that Jonathan succeeded without taking any of the leadership actions that we would typically associate with a strong and positive leader. So he didn't take control of the group. He didn't call out the bad behavior. Um, What he did was subtle and really what he was doing was making people feel safe. So the book refers to multiple studies um, where this safety was seen and demonstrated. So it looked at Navy SEALs, it looked at sports teams and business teams and identified the behaviors that a team demonstrates when they feel safe. And they were, weren't big moments. They were ultimately really small social connections. So an example of some of these are close physical proximity. So often in circles. So that's definitely been impacted by our current situation with COVID. Um, The second one was profuse amount of eye contact. So people in this group, they were showing that they were attentive, they were present, and they were doing that through eye contact. There's also a lot of physical touch. So handshakes, fist bumps, and hugs. So again, a small behavior, but really important. There was lots of short, energetic communication back and forth, as opposed to long long-winded talks from one person. So it was that short exchange of information. There was lots of mixing. So it wasn't just two or three people in the group. There was lots of people within the group mixing together. There was very few interruptions. And what people were doing was asking questions. There was intensive, active listening. There was lots of humor and laughter. And then there was also, I found this one really interesting, but there was really, uh, people were really polite. Um, So there was lots of thank yous. There was opening doors. So a small behavior, but had that real powerful impact. So how can we create this environment where people behave this way naturally rather than being told to behave in this by this list? And actually what um, the book describes is it's all around building this psychological safety. We have to ensure that people feel a sense of belonging. And when they feel that sense of belonging, they're going to behave in those ways more naturally. So in the book, uh, he quotes Amy Edmondson. Many of you have probably heard of her. She studies psychological safety at Harvard. And a quote from her is that as humans, we are very good at reading cues. We have a place in our brain that's always worried about what people think of us. As far as our brain is concerned, if our social system rejects us, we could die. So she recommends that we need to be really intentional about creating this sense of belonging. And there's a number of ways that we can create the sense of belonging. And that is number one, energy. So we need to really invest in the exchange that's occurring. So we're we're putting in energy and investing into the exchange. The second is individualization. So we need to treat each person uniquely and showing that they're valued for their uniqueness. And third, and this one, again, I found really interesting, was future orientation. So we needed to show and signal to the person that we're connecting with that this relationship is not short term, but it's something that's going to continue. And when we do all three of those things, so we invest energy, we make it individual, and we bring in that future orientation, um, we create belonging, a sense of belonging. And when we create that sense of belonging, all those positive behaviors I mentioned earlier, 
actually happen in a more natural way. So to summarize this skill, there was quite a few strategies. So first of all, we need to follow those uh, belonging cues of energy, individualization, and future orientation. We need to be really intentional about listening and showing we're listening because of the rapport and connection that that brings. We need to spotlight and share our own weakness, particularly if we're in leadership, because that's key for just creating that sense of safety. It's okay to make mistakes and it's okay to have weaknesses. We need to invite feedback as leaders and we need to embrace the messenger versus shooting the messenger for that feedback. Um, he actually suggests that we avoid sandwich feedback. So if you're familiar with sandwich feedback, it's ultimately where you give someone positive feedback, you give them the real constructive feedback, and then you try and light coat it with more positive feedback. And what he says is that if you've created a culture that's strong and if you, you've created a culture um, that's positive, feedback is actually welcome. And you lose the richness of feedback by trying to package it up in a what can come across as quite a manufactured way. So if you're giving constructive feedback, just give constructive feedback. If you're giving positive feedback, just give positive feedback, but focus on the culture of safety first. Um, he talked about previewing future connection. And this is where you inspire someone to think about the future and who they might be. So in a team environment, this could be that you say to someone who's new or someone who's part of a sports team that three years ago, someone that they really admired was sitting in their place who felt exactly like they felt. And what that does is it makes the, the newer person feel like they have something to aspire to that's achievable and someone, someone that they admire. And again, that creates that safe environment. Highlights again, the importance of overdoing politeness so we're, we need to be upping our thank yous and opening doors for each other. Um, not that any of us wants to touch a door these days, but anyway. Um, obviously, due to the experiment with Nick, the actor, we need to be really painstaking in who we hire. So we need to get the right people. And if we've got a group of people, we need to figure out who is this person? Is there any Nicks in our group and how we can remove them? Um. There was another interesting point, and this was around physical environment. So physical proximity actually is you. And it's going to be really interesting after, after COVID when things return to a new normal, um, how that will be. Because he talks about the importance of people being close together and that physical proximity and the difference that that makes in culture. So he they talk about numerous teams at as I said, there was business teams, there was Navy SEALs. They talked about the importance of creating an environment where people had a space to collaborate. So the design of the buildings in which these high-performing uh, teams existed was really important. And they were very intentional about the design. It needed to be open spaces where people could have those close circles and it needed to facilitate that collaboration. Um, the other thing was they talked about making sure that everyone had a voice, which is a lot harder to do um, in practice. And what they what he suggested as a strategy was to highlight when an idea that someone had came to fruition and, and when it was being used. And in doing and highlighting that recommendation by that one person, he was saying that will actually create that drive from others to contribute. 
um, really highlighted the importance of showing humility um, as a team and showing humility as a leader within a team. And then there's two more. So the second last one is capitalizing on threshold moments. So some moments actually have more weight than others. And in a group, it's usually that first day that you join a group. Um, if it's onboarding in a new company, that's where it's a, it's, a, it's a threshold moment. And that experience needs to be so powerful. And finally, talks about embracing fun. Safe cultures are one where people have that chemistry. They want to be there. They want to show up. So the more fun that you can create, that fun environment, that will create that safety. There's a lot in that. <laughs> and that's only skill number one. <laughs> so skill number two is sharing vulnerability. So Daniel writes about uh, we might all know that vulnerability tends to spark some degrees of cooperation and trust, but we may not realize how powerful it is. And it's extremely powerful, particularly in group interactions. So in order to create this vulnerability, he actually describes Navy SEALs who um, I guess not, not many of us would view as being extremely vulnerable. Um, but he talks about two ways in which they create this vulnerability in the team. So first of all, they really are made vulnerable through the training that they go through. So Navy SEALs go through some of the toughest and most challenging training in the world. <clears throat> they have months and months of this grueling training, including the infamous Hell Week that many of us have heard of. And what he says is being so miserable that wet and cold and sandy and just being pushed physically and mentally and emotionally in every way that they're being pushed, it really brings the team together and it breaks everyone down. So they have to get through this together. In order to get through this training in Hell Week, they need to rely on each other and they need to be vulnerable because they're made vulnerable. And secondly, they create a space where it's safe to have those honest and real and often challenging conversations. So the Navy SEALs have a process that they call action um, after action reviews, where they assess and analyze everything that happened after a mission. So one of the Navy SEALs that was interviewed in the book is a guy called Dave Cooper, and he uses the quote, rank is switched off and humility is switched on. And he's looking for that moment where people within the group say, I screwed up. And he says that it's the most important words that a leader can say. I screwed that up. I made a mistake. And he acknowledges that in, in the book, how challenging it is to be creating environments where people are being that vulnerable and talking about, you know, their mistakes. Um, but Dave Cooper talks about how this is what real courage is. So it's not about fighting an enemy with guns and, and weapons. The real courage and this is a quote from him, is seeking the truth and speaking the truth to each other. People never want to be the person who says, wait a second, what's really going on here? We've made mistakes. But inside the SEAL team, that's the culture and that's what's made the SEAL teams so successful because they're willing to have those really uncomfortable conversations and they're willing to embrace feedback in that way. So there's a lot of strategies that we can apply from a business context. And he goes through one really common one that I've certainly come across in, in my work. And it's from Laszlo Bach, who was former head of people and analytics at Google. And he recommends that leaders ask three questions to their teams, their groups, and people who report to them. 
to really foster this sense of vulnerability. So question one is, what is that one thing that I currently do that you'd like me to continue doing? So that's asking, I guess, for what am I doing well? The second one is, what is that one thing that I currently uh, don't do frequently enough that you think I should do more often? So that's really asking for the constructive feedback, but you can see it's packaged in a way that makes the question a lot more safer for someone to actually give, give real feedback. And finally, this, this question is brilliant. The cur- third question is, what can I do to make you more effective? So that's a leader saying to their team, what can I do to make you as a team more effective or their direct report? And the reality is that when a leader is showing that vulnerability and is asking for feedback in that way, it makes it safe for people who work with them to do the same with each other. And what they've found is it creates that culture then within groups where it's not just the leaders who are asking that feedback, it's everyone within the group. And that feedback culture then is created. So they also talk about how we can focus in on critical moments. So there's two key moments in any group. The first one is that first moment of vulnerability. And we have an opportunity to be vulnerable as a group, or if we shy away from that vulnerability, it's like the group goes down a different path. And then the second area is that first piece of conflict. So again, there's two ways that that goes. If it's not handled well, and if it's not approached in that in a, in, a, in a correct way, the group goes down this kind of negative path because they're not safe to be vulnerable. They're not safe. They're not vulnerable. And they don't have that mechanism to handle conflict in a way that creates that safety and vulnerability. So ultimately, what we need to do in those moments of vulnerability and in those moments of conflict is adapt and flex our behavior to work and connect with others. So again, listening came up as being a top strategy to create that vulnerability. And and when we're vulnerable as leaders and individuals, we really are showing up as strong listeners. Also talked about that candor generating practices. So that's the after action review that I mentioned earlier by the, the SEALs. And they also talk about before action reviews where they identify before a mission or a project what they want to achieve. And finally, as I mentioned before, it really is about embracing that awkward discomfort feeling that we all face when someone starts to be vulnerable at the start in a group um, where we're sharing maybe something that's painful or we're sharing mistakes and weaknesses and errors. Um, and he said that that the reason people shy away from it is because it feels maybe personal or it feels um, like the whole project could get derailed because people are are kind of focusing on those things. And, and yet that's not what that does. What it does is creates that safe and vulnerable place where people feel a sense of belonging and they feel safe. And then they're willing to say, I screwed up, which again, as, as this Navy SEAL said, is four of the most um, or three of the most important words that we can and should be saying. Because if we look at ourselves from that lens, we're going to learn and grow so much more. So skill number three. So skill number three is establish purpose. And here in the book, he describes purpose as not tapping into some mythical internal drive, but rather it's creating ways that focus a group, their attention and engagement on that shared goal. 
And he describes successful cultures doing this by uh, figuring out ways to tell and retell a powerful story. And the story then creates high-purpose environments. So I found this really interesting. So we might all know that stories are, you know, incredibly powerful and that they, um, you know, can be really interesting and compelling and they're more memorable than facts and figures. And studies, they're actually 22 times more memorable than facts and figures. Um, that's actually not in the book. That's I must have read that somewhere else. So sorry for dropping that in. Um, but what he says is that when we hear a fact, a few isolated areas of our brain light up. Um, but when we hear a story, our brain lights up significantly. So he describes it like Las Vegas. There's a huge difference in how our brain lights up. And that's probably why it is 22 times more memorable, right? Um, but what he says is stories ultimately can guide group behavior in a really powerful way. So by telling a story, it can orient a group to behave differently. And he actually tells this fascinating story. So a study done by a Harvard psychologist, um, Rosenhall. And what he did was he approached an elementary school and he asked the teachers, could he do a study on uh, a test with these children that would identify intelligence? So he tested these children and then he gave the list to the teachers, not to the students, of who the high potential students were. And they were young children. Um, so the children didn't know, just the teachers knew. And what he said to them was that they might, these students, this, you know, 20 students mightn't look like they're extremely intelligent, but we found this great study that we've been working on in Harvard. And this is what will show, you know, they have great potential. They're special this, you know, they're, they're, you know, it's, it's really uh, important that they uh, achieve their potential. And then the following year, he returned to that school. So it was only one year. And what he found was the 20 people that had been classed in this high potential group had succeeded significantly in increasing their intelligent intelligence. So their IQ points actually went up to 27% on average versus 12% for the other students. So it was quite a, quite a lift. And he also found that they thrived, those students thrived in a whole range of different ways. And the feedback from the teachers was that these students had really grown and developed in the last year. Um, but then he told them, like most studies, that that's actually not what the study was about at all. So it wasn't about these high potential children. Um, they, those children had just been picked at random. So they weren't high potential at all. They were, you know, every child is, has potential. So I'm not saying that. I'm just saying they weren't in this highly intelligent group. So they were average intelligence and that wasn't part of the study. What the study was actually about was the teachers. So if the teacher viewed a child differently, if they saw them as being highly intelligent, would they would their behavior change towards the student? And what they found was it definitely did. So the teachers had far more warmth towards those students. They gave far more input. So they provided more materials for learning. Um, they uh, called on the students more often and more frequently, and they listened to their responses. And then they gave a lot more feedback to those students when they made a mistake. So ultimately, the teacher's behavior changed based on a story they were told that wasn't even factual. And as a result, children actually 
their future changed because their intelligence increased far more significantly. Another really powerful example that he talks through in the book around purpose is a story from Adam Grant, who's an author and organizational psychologist. And he was asked from a university to do a study on um, a really low performing call center. And what their role to do was ring um, university alumni and ask to donate money. And it was really repetitive work, really boring work. And the re- rejection rate um, was 93%. So these this, this poor people doing this call center had a tough job. They were getting lots of no's. So what he wondered was if he could get a story of someone who benefited from a scholarship with this university, would this have a difference? So they got a letter from someone who had been uh, to the university and had benefited from the calls that this call center were making. And they shared that story with everyone in the call center. And what they found was fascinating. So the time that those people spent calling alumni increased by 142% and the weekly revenue increased by 172%. So nothing had changed in terms of incentives. Nothing had changed in terms of what their job was and what they were being asked to do on a day-to-day basis. All that had changed was the fact that the workers now had a story that they could anchor the purpose of the work that they were doing to. So ultimately, both of those examples and stories create a high purpose environment, linking the present environment to that meaningful future outcome and use stories to orient motivation in that way. So what are the ultimate list of strategies that we can do to create and establish purpose? Well, as mentioned, we should all start using stories to create that behavior change and orient others. Second one is we need to create purpose by generating that clear link between where we are now and where we want to be. So that message is really clear for the group. To do that, it's about naming and ranking priorities. So he talks about the importance to make sure to to, to the importance of like having what the top priorities are and everyone being really clear on what those those are. And then he says, be 10 times clearer about your priorities as you think you should be. And he uses an example, which I I found fascinating. Um, It was with Inc. magazine and he asked executives at 600. Sorry, Inc. Magazine did a study where they asked executives at 600 companies to estimate the percentage of their workforce that could name their own company's top three priorities. So the executives predicted that 64% would be able to name these list of priorities when, in fact, only 2% were able to do it. So as leaders, we're not communicating our priorities enough. So it was really honing in on keep repeating, keep making it clear and keep the priorities small. Talked about the importance of measuring what really matters. So um, sometimes we measure things that aren't as important. And he talked about um, a call center measuring how many calls per hour they were making. And it wasn't about that. It was actually about making connection with the customer. So they changed what they were measuring to being about connecting with the customer. It's a lot harder to measure that, but what they did was reward behavior when there was that really positive feedback from customer or when they had lengthy phone calls with customers. Um, One hour, I think, was was one um, of these calls was 10 hours and 29 minutes, which sounds insane. Who would want to be that customer? But anyway, they they refer to that in the book. Um, Also talk about focusing on bar setting behaviors. 
So one of the challenges around building purpose is that translation of ideas into like what it really means for a team. And he gave a great example for a hockey team. So it was around, um, I'm not very familiar with hockey, so I might even butcher this as I try and explain it. Um, but he refers to back checking, which means rushing back if you're, if um, rushing back to defend your opponent when they're going for a score. And they talk, they use the phrase 40 for 40 and back checking rarely works. So when you rush back, I guess because of the speed, it you rarely get back in time to stop your opponent. And the reason they call it 40 for 40 is 39 times within a match, you might not get back, but maybe on the 40th you do. And what they do is they make a huge deal through video footage after a match, if someone gets back and back checks their opponent, because it's the boring, it's the boring task that is rarely successful. And yet it's so critical and can be that 1% that makes a difference in sport. He also talks about figuring out where your group aims, um, what, what your group aims are. Is it for proficiency or is it for creativity? And you need to have a different approach for both. So if it's around proficiency, it's all around having that very clear map of what everyone should do because it's around doing the same task in the same way. But if it's around creativity, it's about creating that space and that, that um, freedom to come up with your own solutions. So it's different different approaches to both. Um, three more. So he talks about using catchphrases. So uh, if any of you have read Legacy, um, it's a great book um, about the All Blacks. And they have a lot of phrases that they use, like we need to leave the jersey in a better place, or we need to keep a blue head instead of a red head, which is referring to performing under pressure. Um, they use a phrase called pressure is a privilege which is a really great way of reframing how we view pressure. And then better people make better all blacks. And it's really talking about the importance of character versus just being good um, at sport. So those catchphrases can really create that sense of culture um, and, and they can be so important. And then also we talked about artifacts. So in the Navy, in the Navy SEALs and in Pixar and Disney, they are surrounded, when you go into those team environments, you're surrounded by artifacts that mean something to the teams. So there is memorabilia from um, movies for Pixar and Disney. Um, there's battle gear of people who've died um, within the Navy SEAL headquarters. And it's just showing what matters. And it's reminding people through these, these artifacts of what's important and what our purpose is as a group. So just to summarize, one of the best uh, measures of a group culture is that learning velocity and it's our ability to perform new skills. And hopefully we can all take away some of the strategies within those three skills around building that safety, around sharing that vulnerability and creating that vulnerable space, and then ultimately establishing that sense of purpose to ultimately improve our team cultures. So open up to any questions. That was, <clears throat> I have about 10 questions, but that was brilliant. Uh, Sarah, really well delivered. You can definitely detect a lot of uh, interest and passion around that one. Um, 
I'll start with one anyway. But yeah, I was interested in the terminology, and I you you refer to it as a group an awful lot of time. Were they calling it a group or a team in the book? Uh, because done research, done a lot of workshops around moving from a team to a, or from a group to a team to a high-performing team and just interested in what the insights in the book was around those. I didn't, didn't, um, the group didn't, or the book didn't really go into differences between group and team. It definitely mm. referred to group, but it also did refer to team at times. Mm. So, um, you know, the teams that they, they, they spoke a lot about was the, the SEAL teams, so Navy SEAL teams. Um, but then sometimes when they were talking about organizations, they were talking about groups within organizations. So it could be, um, a, you know, a small group within Pixar and how they worked well together, et cetera. So okay. it was a bit of both, but it didn't go into like the evolution from group to team to high performing team. Okay. It was very much around that culture piece and how you can create culture through the, these three skills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's good to know. They're absolutely magic. I've got seven pages of notes there after chatting. Uh, one thing, because you mentioned the legacy there as well, and, and that seems to be the more uh, well-known book that's out there. I think this book by Daniel Cord is far superior. And yeah. I think there's a danger, certainly a danger with legacy, is that people, uh, they almost see it as a silver bullet. So I see it with sports teams a lot. If we sweep the dressing rooms like the All Blacks will play like the All Blacks kind of thing. Yeah. I was wondering there, just even to, to kind of the, the context side of things, is there something that kind of popped out for you that said, you know what, this is this is generally applicable that would be useful for all teams, you know, that, that they should adopt one thing. Did, did anything pop up for you in that way? I think it's a great point. And I think um, with legacy, and I know I found it as well, like there was all these kind of small tactical things you could do, like you could create a great catchphrase and you could, um, you know, create that humility behaviors. Um, But when they're done in isolation, I don't think they're going to have that strong impact. And I think what's great about this book, and I agree with you, Deck, like this, this really goes into the steps to create the group culture, I think you need to start with that safety piece. It has to start with that psychological safety and that creating that sense of belonging. And the three points around belonging cues about energy, like really investing in and having energy in who you're connecting with, that individualization and future orientation piece. That future orientation piece was something I hadn't, I wasn't familiar with. And I've read this book a year ago or two years ago, and I didn't pick up on it, but I've really picked up on it now. Like when you're connecting in a group or when you're connecting with an individual, how are you showing that person that this relationship is going to continue? And that's what creates belonging. And I think that that's really interesting first step for a group to do. And then from there, you can build on the vulnerability and the purpose. But I think we often skip that safety piece and we don't we don't break it up into energy, individualization and future orientation. Magic. Love the answer. Completely agree with you. Um, so Sarah, yeah, brilliant. Um, I'm actually now going to buy the book. I think after <laughs> nice. that, because you know, sometimes it just it, it seems so interesting, and you've covered loads. But I bet there's probably even more in it. Um, you talked a little bit there, throughout, um about 
you know, the current working environment and the fact that not everything we can do there um, is possible right now, especially on the safety piece. And I actually read similar uh, concepts in um, another book that I'm reading at the moment, Unlocking Happiness at Work. So it does seem to be something that's consistently being said. But um, of the entire book, I suppose, and what you read, like what's the one or one or two things that you're kind of saying to individuals and leaders now, like that you can do this remotely and you can do this in person, you know, if nothing else, do this. Was there like mm. one thing that stood out for you to say, look, just do this one um, above all else? That's a great question. And I, I think um, one of the things that stood out for me around that was the behavior of Jonathan in the experiment. So it was how his, what he was doing was so small in creating that safety. And I think that's something that leaders can do and people who are involved in learning and training like myself or onboarding new new individuals like how are we making their first few days safe and how is that first project that they're working on in a new work from home environment safe and yeah. when someone has something that you know outside we all have personal lives there's lots going on that is challenging for us how how are we sharing vulnerability as leaders about maybe how we're coping with COVID? Are we sharing that we're cha we're challenged by it? Um, are we showing that it's okay to not be as um, maybe competent virtually as we were in person? And I think in, in sharing that vulnerability and creating that safety, we're making it okay that this is a learning environment because we are yeah. actually in a learning environment. If we'd been told um, back in March, that we had six months to get ready to work from home, we would have went, nah, we wouldn't, we won't be able to do it. No way is so many businesses going to be able to work from home. And yet we were given like no time <laughs> and we yeah. adapted and we adjusted, but we haven't necessarily adapted well. And I think we we're surviving, but like, I think this is where some of the insights within the group are stuff that we can really apply you know, how are we being, how are we creating that safe environment? Are leaders um, being vulnerable and sharing their struggles and what's not working in this new work from home environment? Are we having after action reviews so that we're really learning the first project or the second project that we've worked on in this new environment? And if we're not doing those things, I don't think we're maximizing our effectiveness as a group. Yeah, I, I just think what you said there to remember that we're in a learning environment, I think I might Put that on a post because I think that just sums it all up. That's really good, really important. I think so. Thanks, Sarah. I thought you were amazing. If ever you want to give up the day job, you can go into reading books because I think I could listen to you all day. Like you have a lovely voice, lovely accent, um, and a bit like Neil, I'm going to buy the book as well. Um, I'm not sure. I have a question thought out, but I have two thoughts that struck me. Um, the first is similar to Neve as well around, I was really struck about, it's no wonder teams are struggling because everything you mentioned about what makes a great team mm. in terms of the touching each other, high-fiving each other, being in everything, that's all taken away from us. Mm. Um, and, you know, like, no wonder, you know, it's no wonder how much that we're struggling when you just think about it. Um, so I, that was one thing that struck me. And there's just something else that struck me there recently. Um, I 
at the moment, have been coaching a number of leaders who have been in organizations a long time and have left to go to another company. Um, and if I ever write a book, which I never will, Neil, um, <laughs> it's going to be called The Breakup Job because I, I do believe, right, that when people, and I experienced it myself, when people are in organizations for a long time, you know, anything after eight years, maybe, and they go to another organization that might be equally as good um, of an organization, they struggle. And they don't, sometimes, most times they don't settle. I, every person I think of, I'd say 90% don't settle. And they go to another company, which is of equally good standing. So I'm talking about, I know people going from EMC to Eli Lilly, Eli Lilly to Johnson Controls, didn't settle in Eli Lilly, but settled in Johnson's and, you know, great companies like that. And I've just been struck by, I bet you it's the vulnerability isn't being shared because in their current, in their previous company, they were absolutely probably top of their game because they, they were very well known and everything. And now they're going as a leader into a new company where they're in that learning environment that you mentioned, but they're not showing their vulnerability because of everything else, you know, they're, they're on a probationary period, they need to make an impact, all of these things, and they just struggle. So if we could get the fact around the sharing vulnerability to leaders as they're starting in their new leadership roles, that would be phenomenal. Yeah. I, I open to discussion. I rambled on there, but it was just something that struck me. Is there something about vulnerability at onboarding senior people? Yeah. And, and Susan, I think to your point, like, do we talk enough about creating a safe space for leaders? Like, so we talk about creating a safe space for the people on the team, but how about that senior, that senior team? And, and yeah. do they have the safety as well? Because this is important for them. Otherwise, how are they meant to, you know, repeat it down the chain, right? So you can't ask them to do something that they don't have themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, funny, Susan, like, you know, a lot of, especially senior positions, right? You're hiring somebody who you think is going to be magic for the role. And because of the pace of life, we're so busy, it's almost like, oh, you're a hassle for me now to go and integrate you into the team and you're a hassle <laughs> for me to sit down and, and go through everything with you. You're, we're hiring at, you at a senior level, come in and hit the ground running. And that yeah. time is the start of the prevailing notion. And actually, we tend to lose all the gold of somebody's capabilities and we almost erode their confidence by throwing them into this whirlwind of a new job, a new start, where they just don't have time and space. And, and back to Neve's point then as well, like I had a guy I was coaching last week and he's just started a new role. There's a team policy that, that your video can't be switched on. Mm. So it's just they want, to, they want to show your homes or whatever it is. So he's now in charge of a team of six people and he doesn't know what they look like. Oh we've had multiple conversations and stuff. He has to hit the ground running. There's targets, KPIs. He's managing six people, but he'd walk past them in the street. <laughs> what they look like. So are we really adapting? Are we really setting people up for success? I think is, is probably the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with that. Yeah, that's, that's I was just going to add in there, reading um, Sally Helgenson's book, How Women Rise. Um, and just the bit I was reading today was just about emotions and, you know, women are at the risk of, of being too emotional at work and then men not at all. 
So there's kind of that sweet spot, I suppose, when we're talking about vulnerability and how much emotion and how much you open up and how much do you disclose. And actually somebody posted me on LinkedIn today as well. Like how much do you share about yourself or do you put on this persona at work, you know? Um, and I suppose it takes a while. And in my work with, with introverts, they're generally more or weak because I'm one or more reserved. So it takes a while to open up. Um, but then you get this image that you're kind of unfriendly or, you know, um, distant or, you know, so and the, so then maybe you're come across as less vulnerable and less open to sort of connecting with others. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting. So well done, Sarah. I've a page of notes here. I couldn't write quick enough. It was really interesting. Um, and I loved the story about the school as well and how the children were treated differently. And there's actually a story as well from um, it's an elementary school as well in Iowa. It was the morning after Martin Luther King was killed. And the teacher wanted to teach the children about differences, uh, but she didn't want to make it about skin color. So she divided the class into blue eyed children and brown eyed children. And then she started to treat the blue eyed children differently, kind of more superior. And over time, they started to act in a different way as if they were more special. So it's kind of, yeah, I, I really believe that, you know, if you're if you treat people differently and in a certain way, they, they can start to behave it, you know, so um yeah, really interesting. Thank you. I actually ordered the book about two years ago, and but a summary arrived. So there's actually a summary. Uh, I meant to order the whole book. So if you don't feel like reading the whole book, there is a summary out there too. <laughs> Could have done with that last week. Eve. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I noticed, yeah, she didn't share it. <laughs> Brilliant. Any more questions, Manabri? Rob, you said you've got about 10 questions. Surely you've got one more. I do have loads more, um, but I, I don't want to drag it on too long. But one one other thing that I'm always not nit nitpicking about, I find interesting in the interchange of use of language is, is a skill versus a competency, right? And you mentioned skill all the way through. Is <clears throat> For me, a skill is something that's very, very repeatable over and over. You can do it automatically, whereas I think things like developing psychological safety or vulnerability is almost more of a, a competency or it's it's there's an, an emotional element to it as well and it, it's just i always my ears tuned into a lot of the work we do around culture when people talk about knowledge or skill or, or competency and just interested if they if the author ever addressed either or mentioned competencies at all or was it all skills all the way through yeah it was it was skills that he referred to um versus the competencies um, and it was very much that we can learn these skills and we can apply these skills. And as a result, we can culture is something that we do versus something that just is or isn't. And, and um, that really connected to me because some, certainly with skills, I always feel like that's something with intention we can all do. Um, so sometimes with competencies, that makes me go, do I, is this something that I have or don't have? Whereas skills for me is something that we can all do. And I felt like that was a message, maybe a subtle message that he was putting through uh, within the book, but he didn't mention competencies at all. Mm -hmm. No, no, that's interesting. And I, I know we were talking about vulnerability and mm. I think stripping that back and maybe the word is thrown out there too much but just being authentic as well is so important that if you're going to be vulnerable if you see a leader coming on being vulnerable quote unquote just to be pretending to be vulnerable it's 
it has the absolute opposite effect that you're not going to you're going to be repelled from from that person because they're they're trying to share something that is awkward and not in yeah. a in a vulnerable way or in, it's an in, inauthentic way and, and 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 again we pick up on that yeah. you know subconsciously i think I, I think that's such a valid point because because we know the importance of vulnerability. You know, I've seen it with leaders and and with people over the last few years where it's like, okay, I need to be vulnerable now. And here's my vulnerable story that I'll share. Mm. And here's how I'll manipulate this to to generate or get through this key message. And I think if it happens in any of those contexts, to your point, Rob, it's not authentic. So it needs to be authentic. And what I loved about how he talked about it in the book was he talked about sharing your weaknesses and sharing your failures and doing that in an upfront way. And, you know, that's what creates a space of vulnerability. But the purpose behind that is not just to share it, to create this fuzzy feeling of we're all in this together. He's doing it to create a culture of, learning and growth if we're if I know what my weaknesses are I can flex and adapt if I know um what my weaknesses are and I'm willing to say it and be public about it and I'm able to say like the Dave Cooper story the Navy Seals I screwed up that's creating a culture where others who screw up will talk about screwing up and ultimately that's going to be better for the organization and the team. And, and, and I loved that as the message. And if that's our intent with vulnerability versus this kind of generic, uh, let's try and, and build some connection for the sake of it, I just feel like it doesn't come across as authentic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And last point I'll make just kind of became very apparent, right? So a lot of the stuff I'm trying to do working with leaders is is to make that physical connection remotely and and come up with approaches to do that and as it was just like looking at us right now right we're most of us have never met each other and we've been doing this once every two weeks for a number of weeks and there feels like a connection here because we're talking Mm -hmm. about something we're passionate about so i think it's absolutely possible it's just the the subject um and a shared interest i think is very very important so if you can kind of tap into that and we are rec- I'm recommending doing kind of virtual book clubs in organizations around a topic that people believe in whatever that might be um it can make the connection so i think i think there's there's hope for it right but um it's just there there's definitely a lot of tr- experimenting needed i suppose yeah i think it goes back to sarah's point about what energy you're putting into it like is it something yeah. that's radar is it a kind of a thing that we want to focus on actually connection mm. and we realize that focus on connection then has the the knock-on performance benefits yeah very true very true it was great it was brilliant yeah definitely like everybody else said i took about five pages of, of notes of which they're going to be typed up tomorrow morning and and put into practice pretty quickly so very valuable thank you sarah it was very good Thank you. Yeah, Thanks, Sarah. Really good. Brilliant, Sarah. Well done. Very good. And so what are we now? The, the 15th, the 29th is, is open. I, I have somebody signed up for the 10th of November, believe it or not, well out into wow. <laughs> they're really looking forward down the road. Yeah, but, very, uh, organized, huh? very organized. Very organized. But we have nobody between now and then, though, so we're screwed yeah. for that. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll always get. So if you know of anyone interested, guys, 
send them our way or, or if anyone's listening to this now that it's put out if you're interested in taking the 29th of september slot get in touch uh i think it's always always really interesting to hear the, the summaries it's great absolutely onwards and upwards very well good done, guys everybody. thanks again sarah Hi, nice everyone. to see you, everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye, everyone good luck bye. 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 Bye.